As we discussed on this podcast before, customer success organizations are under immense pressure to prove their value to the bottom line. Today, we will be joined by a customer success executive from the largest software company in the world, and we will go deep on the role of CS in a profitable software business model. I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, and welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. So let's get the Inside Engine humming right away here. I want to bring in Mike Flanagan, who is the Corporate Vice President of Global Customer Success at Microsoft. Mike, welcome to Tectonic. And can we start with you describing your responsibilities uh, at this little startup called Microsoft? Uh, Thanks for having me, Thomas. Uh, So as you mentioned, I'm responsible for global customer success. Uh, We are responsible for all of Microsoft's commercial products making sure that our customers achieve the value that they expected when they bet on Microsoft technology. Fantastic. And, you know, we think about, you know, customer success, and it it is a term uh, that has been around, you know, for a while now. Um, But it's also a term that, you know, that continues to evolve in terms of what customers or or, or company expectations are from from the function. So I'm curious, how would you define customer success in the market today and how has it changed over you know the past several years in your mind well i mean i think you you've already sort of touched on the fact that depending on who you ask you'll probably get a slightly different answer so uh, you know i'll share at microsoft it's really about understanding what our customers are trying to achieve they have a, a business case that they made when they bet on microsoft and they have a way that they're planning to measure the success against that case um, customer success at microsoft is really about aligning the activities that we do with customers to the things that they need to achieve the success as they define it, not as we would define it. Once we understand that, for example, um, how a customer expects AI to help them transform an experience, then we can really focus our work with that customer on accelerating their business case so that they see those results that they're looking for faster. Um, That includes everything from proactively sharing best practices, learnings from other customers, of course, things like building a resilient architecture to make sure that Thing that they're trying to deliver is always available for them to deliver the value that they expect. Um, and of course, ongoing cost optimization, because nobody gets excited about spending more than they have to, to achieve the returns that, that they bet on. So, I mean, as I listen to you, I mean, it's sort of a classic definition of customer success in the sense that it starts with how does the customer define success? <laughs> What's important to them, whether it's cost savings or whatever they're trying to achieve from the business perspective. First, we get that on the table and then we work backwards in terms of how we can help them achieve that success. And that is what the customer success function is is all about. And, and you put uh, AI on the table and I, it's one of the things I definitely want to talk about um, w- with you. But I, w- I want to start with the role of um, of analytics and and how uh, you know it is involved in delivering customer success specifically at, at Microsoft. How do you leverage data and analytics in terms of helping customers achieve those those you know business objectives? I mean, maybe just to start with a sweeping statement, which is that data really informs everything that we do. Um, I mentioned understanding what our customers care about, what their business case is. Uh, that really starts with a very structured customer success plan. Really understanding deeply what they're trying to achieve what they expect from us in partnership, how we uh, believe that we can help them achieve that. That customer success plan then forms a set of data that we refer back to constantly and marry up with with other data, things like product telemetry to make sure that we can improve the, the end user experience for whatever application the customer may be building in our cloud. 
Um, but importantly, then it's about understanding patterns, benchmarks, deviations from benchmarks, uh, really understanding what we need to do to help a customer optimize for cost, for example, uh, compared to what we see from their peers in their industry. Uh, so data is really at the heart of everything that we do and the way that we drive success with customers. And so, you know, so you mentioned, you know, benchmarks, and, and I think one of the, the things that is, we've talked about on this podcast before, what's exciting about the newer business models where you have customers on a platform, it's a SaaS experience, it's, it's, it's that type of world, is you, you know, you do have telemetry you've never had before, which allows you to do benchmarking that you could never do before, right? Because if everybody was a bit of a snowflake or they were disconnected, I mean, you just, you really didn't know what was going on with their environment. Um, you know, it's, you know, it, it's a game changer. And I'm just curious on the benchmarking side of it, any comments in terms of, um, you know, not specific benchmark data, but the, but the type of conversation that's unli- unlocking or is, you know, when you talk about benchmarking, is it around, you know, technical performance? Is it around business process performance? Is it all of the above? I mean, what type, when, you, when you're helping customers from a benchmarking perspective, you know, where are you adding value there? I'm just really curious. Well, it's a little bit all of the above. Uh, you know, if you think about the fact that we're operating the, either the infrastructure or the platform or perhaps both uh, for our customers, um, they expect that we understand quite a lot from the telemetry of the infrastructure and the platform and use that to constantly refine things like cost, but also performance, uh, making sure that you know their resiliency is as high as it can possibly be. Um, so we, you know, we we certainly use it in that respect. Uh, also, with many of our customers, we understand what they're trying to do from a, let's say a compliance perspective in a regulated industry, uh, and can help them understand the way that they've implemented a certain piece of architecture versus what we see other customers in that industry doing, uh, and can help guide them towards perhaps doing something that's more uh, in line with what their regulators in that industry expect to see. Uh, or where we've seen successful regulatory inspection uh, in other peer companies. Yeah, I mean, so, so, you know, it's interesting as I, as I listen to you, you think about the, the the traditional value proposition from a technology provider would be around things, you know, like, you know, uptime or throughput or, or you know, just say, here's how your system is performing, right? And we'll give you maybe benchmarks on that or feedback on how, how that's going. But what you're putting on the table here are more foundational you know, value propositions around the three big buckets of, hey, let me help you with costs. <laughs> um, let me maybe help you with, you know, revenue. Um, but then this one around risk and compliance, that's huge, you know, for companies. And, and being able to, you know, have that value proposition um, based on what you're seeing in the data, I think is um, phenomenal. But it speaks to, to, I think, this journey we've seen technology providers on in terms of, you know, working with their customers and not just saying, look, I'm down here at the infrastructure or tech level, I'm really unlocking value propositions that are up to the top, <laughs> top of the, the stack here around, you know, cost, revenue, risk, um, which is which is way different than it used to be. I mean, and exciting for sure. So so let's um, stay on the technology front here. And, you know, you already put AI on the table. Microsoft is a massive investor in this area. And, and what do you see the role of AI specifically in delivering customer success? Because it seems like this is a really exciting front. Yeah, I mean, I guess let me start with what I what I don't think it is. Uh, I, I don't think AI is the replacement for customer success managers. I don't think we're going to see AI, um, you know, replacing the people who partner with customers closely and understand their business deeply. Um, what I do think we're going to see AI do is make those people more efficient, more effective, uh, and really help drive 
the engagement in a more meaningful way uh, by reducing the administrative burden that customer success managers and customer success teams uh, have to do, uh, really uh, help them make better data-driven decisions, uh, help put things in front of them more quickly and more efficiently that they can then share with their customers uh, that are hyper-relevant insights for that customer. Um, I, I also, you know, just speaking selfishly as, as Microsoft, as you can imagine, we use a lot of first-party technology, uh, things like Microsoft Dynamics, where uh, as we see AI being infused deeper and deeper into those products, every part of the experience that we have in the way that our people engage through that system with our customers is going to have a little bit of intelligence that it doesn't have uh, today. Um, even in the customer support context, you know, if you can imagine being able to automatically summarize uh, a long-running support case and send that summary to the customer success manager so that they can follow up um, without having to read through you know, hours or days or weeks of case notes, uh, really makes the customer success manager much more equipped to very quickly follow up after a support incident to say, hey, here's what we saw. Here's what we understand was the root cause of that. Here's what we believe that we can do to help you avoid ever having that problem again uh, in a way that today, you know, would be much less efficient, therefore not not quite as effective in quickly bringing some sort of suggestion to the customer that helps improve their experience. So so let me click it because you put two really important, you know, words on the table there, right? So, so in terms of how AI is going to change the world of customer success. So, so one is around um, administration and one is around insights. And, and maybe we just click into both of those a little bit more. So from the administrative perspective, and it could be like you said, just the ability to uh, create executive summaries around a bunch of mound of data, right? Past, you know, incident data or whatever, and being able to say, look, you know, let's get to the salient insights and summarize that, et cetera. Any, any other examples on the administrative side that you think of where you're saying, hey, it's going to make the life of CSMs, you know, a, a lot better. I'm just curious if there's any other early use cases. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've we all sort of played around with chat GPT, or at least most of us have. And, you, you know, you've sort of played with the fact that, you know, write an email to my friend Thomas and thank him for having me join join the podcast. Um, you know, do, doing a similar thing when you email a customer, uh, we're not, you know, suggesting, or I'm certainly not suggesting that we're going to have, you know, send ready or automated send mails generated by AI. Uh, but writing a really good first draft and then being able to have somebody refine that first draft versus having to spend all of their time writing something from scratch, uh, particularly when you're summarizing a pretty routine issue or something that we see a lot of for customers. Um, and you probably wouldn't do that with your you know top 10 customers, but you know with that long tail of customers where you don't interact quite as often, uh, being able to use generative AI to pull in some customer intelligence to personalize the note a bit. Uh, in a way that you probably wouldn't be able to do if you're a CSM managing a, a long tail of smaller customers, uh, I think has a lot of promise. So as I, as I listen to them, if we, if we think about the spectrum between um, we have a you know an automated email that goes out to a customer that's a template that's pretty much you know one to many model, right? That's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have highly bespoke, very custom for the customer, where the you know, CSM sitting down and you know really customizing that response. And what you're saying is there's this you know this new sweet spot in between that, where you can you can leverage the technology to make it more custom, more insightful, um, but it's not as such a heavy lift as a complete bespoke outreach. Is that is that a fair summary of where one of the use cases? I think that's right. And I mean, you know, j just to draw a parallel with things that we can probably all relate to, you know, you, you get a, an email to uh, 
uh, that says, uh, dear customer, like, you know, immediately that it's a form letter that every customer receives. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the next click up from that is like, dear Thomas, I'm like, oh gosh, that feels a bit more personal. But then you read the body of the email and it's very clear that that was the only thing that they did that changed the email from, you know, what they sent to a thousand other people. Uh, you know, imagine as you read throughout three paragraphs of an email, there's a little bit of your company or your personal information that's customized to you inside of that note. So it now feels very personal, like someone really wrote that note just for you. Uh, I, I think that's an opportunity to you know have customers feel a bit more uh, like we're invested with them, a little bit more like we're invested in the relationship, uh, even if from a cost perspective, we're not able to have somebody who spends so much time with them that they know all of the information about that customer intuitively. Yeah, interesting. And then let's go to the the insight side of it. So any use cases you're seeing for customer success where AI is unlocking you know new types of insights or accelerating the ability to get to insights? Yeah, I mean, I think from a, maybe a, a technical support perspective or a product telemetry perspective where you know, you're seeing a performance issue, something along those lines, um, you know, typically you, you would have some sort of diagnostic and then you would have to interpret that diagnostic and then apply it to the customer specific case. There's some, you know, there, there, there's some great shortcuts uh, that we can take with generative AI uh, to help us quickly understand, hey, based on the, all the information that we see here, uh, this looks just like the following things. Uh, and then summarizing that in language that a customer success manager rather than someone from product engineering can understand so that they can quickly work with their customer on how to remediate it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I'm, you know, really kind of bullish on for customer success and from an AI, um, you know, perspective, I mean, because you think, you know, I think a lot about customer success should be data-driven. It's sort of a lot of around, you know, adoption telemetry. Is the customer using, are they not using, you know, are we flagging that, that, hey, we have a laggard here? Um, and so getting more, just like, as you mentioned, support, you know, support has become much more predictive over time, right? Oh, you know, before you have the outage or the problem, we're going to predict you, you know, you're going to have this problem. We're ahead of it, right? And that's been going on in the world of hardware and software for a while now, and that's very data driven, right? And in 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 a very, um, you know, model AI world. I mean, I think that you know, predictive adoption analytics, right? For not only just saying, oh, we now have a laggard customer, right, who's kind of fallen off the, you know, the, the rail here, and we got to help get them back on based earlier, we can predict they're going to fall off, you know, the track here, and we can get ahead of that. I think that that is super cool opportunity. And then I think the other the other one that I've been reading about more is just the opportunity for, you know, sort of hyper personalization in terms of the recommendation. So if we can start to use AI to be way more sophisticated so that the recommendation isn't just, you know, a general, okay, Mike, for somebody like you, we're looking at adoption or whatever, and here we recommend you do these things. Well, no, we know a lot more about Mike and his persona, you know, what his use case is, what his industry is, boom, boom, boom. We're going to be really specific about what he should be adopting, what he should be doing. I think both of those use cases being more data-driven, AI-driven, could be game changers for for CSMs. Well, I think the more the more something not only feels personal in terms of you know in, including some references to you in the way that the note is drafted, but also really the more that a recommendation resonates as something that is specific to you and applicable for you. Um, the more it also builds a bit of trust for the next recommendation and the one after that, uh, that I really understand you and I understand your environment. Uh, and I think that there's some, you know, some, some great um, opportunities with AI to help us do that more effectively. 
Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So, you know, a big theme that we're hearing when it comes to customer success is, uh, you know, digital customer success experiences for, for the large customers, right? Because if you think about this sort of classic pyramid, we have your large customers on, on top where it's a very much a one-to-one you know, personal interaction, then you might have one to many, you know, with your mid-sized customers. And then maybe you're, you know, you're really leaning into digital for the long tail that the, I see more companies sort of turning that on its head and saying, look, we have large customers where there are digital, positive dinner, digital interaction opportunities here, right? Where we can use a digital experience to help the customer accelerate their adoption, to get value quicker. Um, it's the best way for, for us to deliver that, but also the customer may, might prefer that channel, even though they're a large customer. So I'm just I'm curious, you know, what what are you what are you seeing there in terms of a digital experience for larger more complex customers? I think the most important thing at least from my perspective is to remember that whether you're dealing with a Fortune 10 company or uh, you know mom and pop, at the other end of the recommendation that you make there is an individual, there's a person. Um, and as long as the way in which you're engaging with that person um, creates the engagement um, the, you know, the way that you're choosing to reach out to them creates engagement with your product and with your recommendations. It's relevant regardless of the size and complexity of the customer. Not everything for your largest, most complex customers is large and complex. Some of the things that they do are still fairly basic. Um, and by the same stroke, I think not everything that you do for your smallest customers is easy and repeatable. Sometimes the things that you're doing for those small customers can become very complex because of uh, some nuance in, in the way that they've deployed the products. And and so I think there's a lot of applicability for the things that we do in large enterprise to figure out how you can scale it down uh, and deliver it to smaller customers. But I, I think to the point uh, I believe you're trying to make, there's also a great opportunity to look at the things that typically start in your smaller customer segments out of necessity with digital and think about how to use those across all of your customer segments. Um, and we, you know, we certainly do that with things like Azure Advisor, um, you know, Azure Advisor isn't just for our large or small customers. It's equally applicable to all of our customers. And we see pretty good uptake, frankly, across uh, everything that we do. And that that Azure Advisor, you know, the score that it provides and, and some of those uh, recommendations are things uh, that we believe are, are relevant for every customer that they come to, uh, regardless of the customer size or segment. And, and just make me more familiar with that capability in terms of it's advising digital interaction, and it's advising around what types of services or, or technical capabilities they should be leveraging. Is, is that what it's doing? It's kind of guiding them through, hey, you, you know, take advantage of this service versus that service type of thing? Yeah, think about it as you know, sort of a, a digital cloud consultant that helps provide recommendations. You know, they're proactive, so they're not necessarily in response to an outage or an issue that you've had, um, but they're actionable. They you know, give you some best practices as well as things that you can do to tweak performance and security and reliability of all the resources that you're running in Azure. You know, again, if I'm thinking about security, uh, if I'm an SMB, I, you know, I may not have a CISO and a big security team, but I'm just as concerned about security as a Fortune 10 company is. Um, those recommendations, if I'm not doing the right things to secure my environment, are absolutely as relevant for the largest customer as they are for the smallest. Now, how I action those in a large company may look a little different than how I action them in a small company. Um, but those recommendations and the proposed actions uh, are are not really that different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a trend that is going to continue, and you know, things like you know, digital type of assistant being being played out across 
you know, the largest as, as well as the smallest customers. And, and the, you know, the analogy I keep using in this podcast is the fact that, you know, we on the B2C side, there are so many digital assistants that we use now that that's our preferred model, right? It's like, you don't want to talk to somebody. You'd prefer to take care of it yourself. You'd prefer an intelligent app to work you through that. And I think that that mentality and that experience is is more and more permeating, you know, the B, the B2B world, um, slow but but sure. So I, I want to shift gears on you a little bit here around CS um, because in the current economic environment, uh, there's no doubt that CS is is uh, you know sort of under the microscope within a, a lot of companies and, and customer success as a function has been around for a while, um, but it has been you know mostly blossomed in an environment where you had you know these fast growing SaaS companies who weren't worried about expenses and and were investing in CS because you know they were really obviously nervous about churn they wanted to accelerate expansion to get that growth. And, and now they're, you know, they're, they're way more cost conscious. And so, you know, if the, if, you know, you're the head of CS and your CEO or your CFO is coming up to you and saying, you know, hey, I'm not sure I can afford <laughs> all these customer success expenses and people and everything else you're spending on. If, the, if you're in that conversation, you know, where would you begin to, to defend, you know, the investments in the CS organization? Well, look, Thomas. I think first of all, uh, you know, we have one of the best CEOs and CFOs uh, in the in the business, in my opinion. Uh, that doesn't mean that um, they don't have questions about making sure that they're getting value from every investment that they're making across the company. In fact, I think part of the reason that they're both considered you know top in the industry is that they do they make sure that they are investing the company's money in the best way, and so they ask tough questions. Uh, and uh, I think the you know f- for me the most important. Uh, Part of this answer kind of goes back to an earlier question around data. Um, you you can't have conjecture and hypothesis and you know maybe's and good feelings. Uh, you have to have data to support the fact that the work that you're doing in customer success is driving the business and it is driving the success of your customers in a way that's measurable um, and that increases their loyalty to your brand over time. Uh, so we spend, uh, you know, a, a lot of effort and energy in my team making sure that we are really convicted ourselves that we have the right data to support the fact that what we're doing with our customers um, is driving their success in a measurable way, and it is driving their loyalty to Microsoft uh, in a in a measurable way. I think if you are able to do that, then the the answers become a lot easier. Yeah. And that, and it's a bridge to the, you know, the question that I like to ask, you know, all customer success executives, which is, you know, what success metrics do you live and die by? Right. So when you're talking about that data that you like to point to, to, you know, to help defend the organization, defend investments, tell the story, you know, which ones are are really most important in your, in your mind? Metric number one is around time to value. When a customer comes to us and says, Hey, I've made a decision to bet on a piece of Microsoft technology to help me achieve this business case. Our primary measure is how quickly do we help the customer achieve the business case that they've made? Uh, and can we accelerate beyond what they thought they could commit to and help them actually overachieve that business case? Uh, clearly, if we're able to do that, then we make them look good with whomever they've made the business case to, whether it's the the boss or the board. Um, and that gives us the right to talk to them about expansion of, of that business in the future. And so that's that's number one is just making sure that we're taking care of the time to value uh, in, in the way that customers are measuring 
what they've decided to invest in uh, with with Microsoft. Uh, from an internal measures perspective, um, we look at things like, are we routinely running optimization activities with a customer? There's nothing that builds trust better uh, than going to a customer and saying, hey, while you were sleeping, I was taking a look at where you were not being efficient in the way that you were using our products. Uh, and I've found a spot where I can save you some money. And it seems counterintuitive uh, if you're the organization that's responsible for revenue to go to a customer and say, hey, I think you should pay us less. Uh, but we have a lot of data in my organization to support the notion that customers that actively optimize with us actually grow faster. They grow faster because they're not concerned about whether or not they're getting the return for the investment they're making. They feel confident that because they're they're making those continuous optimization decisions with us, that they are getting the value for every dollar they spend. And that makes them a, a bit happier to spend the next dollar. So um, I think those two things really are, are the ones that are most important. And you know, so, so through that second one, we know that we're contributing to growth, uh, but that's the internal metric. The external metric is making sure that we're actively working with customers to optimize what they're doing. So let's you know go back to the first one on time to value, which which I think is um, you know a critical concept. And again, we talk about value. You know the, the the big boulders there. You know a customer cares about: Am I reducing overall costs? Am I you know so it could have been overall IT costs. It could have been I'm trying to drive better revenue. I'm trying to reduce security risks or you know whatever. So in those time to value conversations, what are what are some common value metrics, if you will, that you're anchoring on that you say, okay, this, you know, this is what we're going to go after. And, you know, and we're, we're, we're making sure you get across that goal line. What are some of the more common conversations you get in there? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as you, as you might imagine, given the size of the company that I work for, the number of times that we do a thing for a customer is pretty massive. Uh, and so one of the things that we really look at is repeatability. Uh, we know, for example, uh, that there's a set of things that you have to do to well to be well architected to architect your solution for resiliency and cost and performance, um, and so looking at making sure that we're really using the repeatable assets that we have to help drive success with customers. We know if we're using repeatable assets, for example, uh, to help optimize the cost of a particular solution, um, it's very easy for us to deliver that. We can deliver those cost optimization discussions more quickly. Uh, we can get to a better outcome more quickly that's measurable for the customer. Um, and you know, so, so as we look to use repeatable assets, we know that we're able to move faster towards helping customers get better value. Um, so certainly, you know, re repeatability is a, is a big piece. Um, I mean, I didn't mention when we talked uh, uh, initially about this, by the way, I didn't mention things like customer satisfaction or net promoter scores, but you know, clearly that's, a, that's an important part of what we do. Um, if we're going through with a customer and conducting a well-architected framework assessment, uh, and we're doing that extremely efficiently, but at the end of it, they're really dissatisfied. Uh, we've obviously made some mistakes along the way that we need to, we need to learn from and correct. Uh, so certainly we're, we're looking at their satisfaction with the things that we're working with them on uh, along that journey. Um, I, I think most commonly, uh, you know, our customers have unique operating conditions because of the industry in which they play. Um, and being able to bring some industry expertise to the conversations I mentioned regulated industries earlier. If I'm in financial services in the U.S., I've got a specific set of constraints. I've got a specific set of regulators. I've got some things that are extremely important for me to be able to, you know, prove in a compliant way that I'm doing. Uh, and having repeatable assets around those gives customers the confidence not only that we can move quickly to implement the business case for, let's say, cost reduction or the ability to scale, you know, horizontally uh, more effectively, 
but also that I'm doing it in a compliant way that their regulators will be happy with uh, and that doesn't put their business at risk. Um, the same can be said of retail or consumer goods. They have their own unique constraints. And so making sure that when we talk with our customers, we're doing it in an industry-aware way uh, is also a pretty important part of how we engage. You know, it's interesting, since your focal point is is financial services, I think one of the most interesting things over the years when it comes to, you know, moving to cloud-based infrastructure and offerings, there was a time, <laughs> right, when this, when this migration was be- started to happen where people would tell me, look, Thomas, there's certain industries that are never going to give up their on-prem data center, you know, and financial services was one of them. That was one of them, right? They're they're never going to do it because they they want that tight control. They're nervous, you know, about this, that, and the other thing. But but clearly, clearly that ship has sailed, right? For for a lot of activities, and and uh, you know, part of you know, the argument I think is winning argument is look, who's going to spend more on you know, day-to-day security, you know, Microsoft or you, right? Your, your budget. I mean, here's the Microsoft view of this world. And so I'm just curious, um, and this is, you know, it's a little bit of a tangent, but but I, I think it's really an interesting one. Tell me a little bit about that temperature. I mean, w- with the financial services industry, do you think that that has become, you know, they're more comfortable, that it's just become more, you know, common belief that, that, that hey, there, there, there is a lot of value to move things in, into the cloud as opposed to trying to manage this on their own? I mean, what's the, and maybe what tipped that in your mind as you talk to those types of customers? I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah, look, I mean, I think in any regulated industry, um, one of the things that is top of mind is how is my regulator going to react if I do X or Y? Pre-cloud, you know, if I think about just virtualization, just server virtualization, right? If my regulator doesn't understand the fact that one application doesn't run on one physical box anymore, then every conversation that I have about application security um, and resiliency becomes more complicated because my regulator doesn't understand the architecture on, on which I'm running. And so I think um, a big part of regulated industries comfort profile with cloud shifting uh, has been the work that they have done collectively with their regulatory bodies uh, to make sure that they understand cloud. And so they kind of caught up, the regulators caught up and they get and they get it and they're more comfortable with it. And so it's it's easier to explain what you're doing there. Oh, that's fascinating. Again, I, I, I don't know if there's an industry that, you know, won't, won't tip this way, but but there was a day when people were like, hey, it's going to be very bifurcated. Some some industries will go out to the cloud. There's a lot that are just never going to do it. And I, it's, it's hard to find an industry that's not leveraging, you know, the scale and, you know, the cost advantages and all that other kind of fun stuff. So interesting times. So I'm going to ask you um, one last question before we, we go here. And it's just one for your peers out there you know, in, in customer success. And I'm always curious because, you know, CS still is a relatively young profession compared to, you know, support services or, you know, um, even consulting services within tech and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, as you've, you know, gone into this career, what do you understand now compared to when you first came in and like took on your first CS responsibilities and you kind of thought about, this is what I think success looks like. Is there any, big sort of ahas there you'd share with us, somebody who was maybe, you know, newer to CS or newer, newer to CS leadership, you'd say, hey, this is something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe a, a couple of thoughts along those lines. The first is, I don't think we've invented something new with customer success. I think what we've found is the intersection of some things that have always existed. Um, you know, customer success is a little bit 
services. It's a little bit support. And if you do it right, it's also a little bit revenue growth. And those things are not new in their own right. I mean, those are pretty mature disciplines in most companies. Uh, it's the way that they intersect now that's changed a bit in the in the dynamic. It used to be that if I sold you a product and you didn't use it, that was your problem. Uh, now with subscription models, if I sell you a product and you don't use it, it's also my problem. And so uh, some of the responsibility for how a product gets implemented and used shifted from you back to me. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that means the responsibility is fundamentally different. I think maybe it sits in a slightly different place and maybe there's a little bit more of an intersection now because of subscription models between the implementation and usage side and the, the revenue side. Um, but I think fundamentally, if, you know, if you're a company who's good at supporting your customers, if you're a company who's good at doing product implementations and you're a company who understands that if you take care of your customers, they'll grow with you, you can figure out customer success by pulling those three things together in the right combination. Yeah. And as I, as I listen to you on that, I, I think th there's an evolution that strikes me when it comes to this thought of customer success. And that is, and you, you already said it, it's, it's like, Hey, who's focused on adoption? That used to be the customer's problem. Then we go to as a service models. Suddenly it's not the customer's problem only. It's our problem, you know, as technology providers. So we, we got to cover that square. Who's going to do that? Oh, we got to we create this thing called customer success to be really explicitly focused on helping the customer adopt. So we had to create, you know, I always say put this new piece on the chessboard. Um, but now, you know, as we go, you know, as the years go on, suddenly, you know, you look within a technology company, everybody's focused on adoption, right? The, the, the professional service organizations, consultants are like, I care about adoption, right? Support's even saying, I care about it. Education definitely cares about it. The product people, I care about it. So now everybody is wearing, in a sense, a customer success hat, right? So it came from being this, you know, this focal point of, of, of one organization to really becoming a mantra across, you know, everything. And like you said, so so the pieces, parts are there. You know, if you have a consultative capability, an education capability, whatever, you could put them together and, and deliver customer success. And in some ways, that's kind of what's happening now. It's like everybody is, you know, becoming part of that. It's, it's one of the reasons it's sort of customer success as a concept is, is, is eating the entire services stack, right? The, you know, you have these what we call big C customer success organizations that include all those capabilities because th that is the end game. That's what that's what matters is, is the customer adopting and are they realizing value? And we just have to have a, you know, a service organization that's focused on that concept. So it's, I mean, I think it's really interesting how it's changing in front of our eyes. So, so Mike, I really appreciate your, your time today. And, uh, and I know you got a busy schedule and we've been working hard to get this on the, on the books and we kind of caught you on the road here and it's a, uh, it's I really appreciate it. Um, and I always like to end these podcasts with a question of the day. And so, you know, there are different stories to justify the funding model for a CS organization. My question to you in the audience is, do you have a compelling story? Cheers, everybody.